0: Brothers and sisters to the Greater Little Zion Baptist Church, we are delighted that you have joined us this morning for the time of worship and celebration. And it is our prayer indeed that the worship experience by way of music will bless your soul and the preaching of God's word will give you the necessary inspiration and instruction that you need. So sit back, digest, be blessed as the spirit of God speaks to you today. Amen.
1: weekly announcements. The missionary ministry for the month of August will be doing a school supply drive at the food distribution in August on August the 21st from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. but also on August the 19th from 5 to 7 p.m. for Thursday for Zion members. If you would like to donate any supplies, the drop-off is on Saturdays or during the week. Also save the date in your calendar for our virtual quarterly church meeting on Saturday, July the 31st at 10 a.m. To RSVP, make sure that you email the admin office at admin at glzbc.org. We also will be having prayer meeting on Wednesdays at 6 p.m. and our virtual adult Bible study Wednesday at 7.30 p.m. On the weekends, we also have our Sunday school sessions. Our youth and young adult Sunday school are Saturdays at 10 a.m. and our adult Sunday school is every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. Well, we thank you for joining us this Sunday and we pray that you have a blessed rest of your day.
0: Great little Zion this is the day that the Lord has made let us rejoice and be glad within it would you get your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 42 Genesis chapter 42 and we're going to read verses 5 through 8 Genesis chapter 42 verses 5 through 8 our sermon this morning will come from verses 5 through 20, but we're going to read for your hearing this morning verses 5 through 8. Genesis chapter 42, verses 5 through 8. Here's what it says, reading from the New Living Translation. So Jacob's sons arrived in Egypt along with others to buy food, for the famine was in Canaan as well. Since Joseph was governor of all Egypt and in charge of selling grain to all the people, it was to him that his brothers came. When they arrived, they bowed before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph recognized his brothers instantly, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where are you from? he demanded. From the land of Canaan, they replied. We have come to buy food. Although Joseph's recognized his brothers, they didn't recognize him. I want to talk this morning from the subject, the shaking of a guilty conscience, part one. The shaking of a guilty conscience, part one. Let me say two things, particularly at the outset. First, You may not recall that the brothers of Joseph were some very shady characters to say the least. They are often referred to as the sons of Jacob and they were, they were also the progenitors of the nation later we would call Israel. But these fellows were not the staunch striking portraits of conservative religion as many have tried to paint them. In fact, in our modern vernacular, we would simply say after reading the lives of these ten brothers, they were indeed a hot mess. Let me give you a brief rundown of the kind of background that these gentlemen portrayed. Son number one, Reuben, had committed incest with his father's concubine in an attempt to secure a seat in power for the future when his father dies. Son number two, Simeon, and son number three, Levi, were guilty of premeditated genocide in the murder of the unsuspecting Shikamites in Genesis chapter 34. Son number four, Judah, had impregnated his daughter-in-law, Tamar, who disguised herself as a Canaanite prostitute Genesis chapter 38. Then, of course, sons 1 all the way to 10 were all guilty of taking Joseph, stripping him down, removing that coat of many colors on him, beating him, and then throwing him into a pit with the intent of killing him, had it not been for a passing caravan whom they eventually sold Joseph to by way of slavery into Egypt, no doubt he probably would have been a dead man. But consider these behaviors. These were less than promising descendants of a great grandfather whom God had made the promise to way back in Genesis chapter 12. God promised him that Abraham, I will make of you a great nation But Genesis chapter 15 says it would only be upon their exodus from coming out of Egypt. But they were, and there they were, because they were heirs of a promise. And in order for them to live out their destiny, they needed to have their conscience awakened, and they needed to be confronted regarding the guilt that no doubt either they had suppressed that they had done to their brother, or they were living in the trauma, in the consistent guilt of what they had done on a daily basis. They needed to experience what the Bible would later call true repentance. They needed to understand what it meant to mourn, and while at the same time, even though they needed to have their conscience sheared, and their conscience ignited to experience the guilt, they still were recipients and needed to be recipients to experience grace and to experience mercy. And amazingly and unbeknowing to them, that grace and that mercy would only come by the very person in which they had determined that they would fatally wound, Joseph himself. Their lives, won't be changed until they go back and then go through the very one whom they had wounded. What happens in this narrative is that Joseph becomes what the late Henry Nowen calls and describes as the wounded healer. I'm here to tell you that it's not a very exciting nor a very pleasing thing to experience becoming the wounded healer. You end up being the one that God uses to heal those who have wounded you. I'm convinced that the turn of events in Joseph's life from a prisoner to the prime minister, from God helping him forget or, as one scholar suggests, helping Joseph cope with the traumatic experience of With his brothers, let's face it, living well, being respected, having more riches and wealth than you ever imagined, being able to right the wrongs in people's lives, and now being the one who will save nations that come to Egypt for grain, no doubt it can help you forget what has happened in the past in the sense that is not the priority of your thought process, and it can help you recognize all of your blessings in the land of your affliction. The second thing I want to say is that I'm not totally convinced that Joseph exercised this blind forgiveness minus any strand of retaliation in his blood like many Bible scholars often suggest. Although it's my own prejudice conclusion, but I find it hard to believe that when Joseph was riding down the street in the second chariot and caught in his peripheral the vision of all of his haters, he saw Mrs. Potiphar. I don't believe that he just waved his hand in love I don't believe that he just chalked up the fact that they're there and now he's here. No more than I believe that when we often have been offended, deeply wounded at levels beyond description, we just forget what a person does and just forgive by way of a process. I'm convinced that when the famine set in, it set the scene that all were affected by the drought. I believe that Joseph may have wondered in his own mind at various points, when would his brothers finally get to Egypt because no one was able to escape the famine. The Bible says in verse 56 of chapter 41 that the famine was spread all over the face of the earth It says in verse 57 of chapter 41 that the famine was severe in all the earth. So Joseph knew that if his brothers were going to survive, they had to come to Egypt at some point in time. I may think differently than many, but I certainly don't believe that that was just a fly by night thought in the thinking of Joseph. I really believe that Joseph may have wrestled in his mind, realizing that finally this is a moment in which I can confront my brothers about the wrong that they have done to me. But what Joseph knew and what his brothers did not know was what verse 6 says in chapter 42 Joseph was the ruler. Joseph was the governor over all the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. In Joseph's mind, in the practicality of the context in which they exist, he knew their survival would very well depend on how he treats them. In terms of whether or not they would get grain when he see them. Remember back in chapter 41 when the people start experiencing the pressure and the grip of the famine, they run to Pharaoh and Pharaoh tells them instantly, go to Joseph. And whatever he tells you to do, that is what you need to do to get grain. Can you imagine now in Joseph's mind? He knows that when his brothers come to get grain, they will have to come before him because he's the one that controls the distribution. He knew their survival was going to depend on his choices. There's a test. And oftentimes when we are persons who have been granted the power to be able to make such decision over other people's lives, There are tests that come along, particularly when those persons violate, offend, cross the line, create wounds within us, whether it be relational, whether it be in some manner of communication. We have the power to make a difference in that kind of context, but it often becomes a test as to how we will maneuver that power. Will we hurt? Will we harm? or will we healed when you're in the position of power that's an often temptation a challenge that you'll have to adhere to because the test further indicates to us the wrestling with the idea will i use the power that i possess to be toxic and to be toxic means that i'm going to render pain even to the point of death like Joseph's brothers? Or will I use my power to transform, to bring about freedom and to bring about life as we will eventualize in Joseph's journey? There are several different words in the Old Testament that refers to power, four or five, particularly in its noun posture, but they all have the same basic meaning. They mean, when we talk about power, they mean strength. They mean authority to change. They mean the power of influence and the power to make a difference. And Joseph knew that in the position that he is in now as prime minister, he's got that kind of power. And when you read the narrative closely, you will observe that Joseph decides to toy with his brothers a bit upon meeting them. Listen to the text. Verse 6 says that when his brothers come into his presence, they bow down to him. Listen to what the verse says in the New Living Translation. Since Joseph was the governor of all of Egypt, they bowed before him with their faces when they came before him, to the ground now you, you've got to understand something in that bowing of a Hebrew to this foreigner who they believe is an Egyptian this whole gesture of bowing is humiliating it actually feels them makes them feel less than a man but they know that at this point in time and in this condition Famine all over the land, father is back at home, the animals have nowhere to graze. They know that this is a moment that labels itself as survival and they must accept that kind of humiliation because it's necessary for them to survive. I want to interject this line, and that is, don't ever say what you won't do in a crisis. I don't care how spiritual you are. I don't care how much you love Jesus. I don't care how much God has saturated your life. You never really know what you will do in a crisis until you are actually placed in that crisis. I'm reminded of an incident in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 15 where a Canaanite woman comes to Jesus looking for healing for her daughter. The disciples are quick to try to not have any interaction or prohibit Jesus from interacting with her, but eventually she makes her way to Jesus. She gets to him seeking deliverance for her daughter. But Jesus replies, it's not a good thing to take bread from the children and give it. the dogs he has spoken a very humiliating word to this woman who's in a kind of a famine condition and yet she responds by saying yes Lord but even the dogs feed from the crumbs that falls from the master's table she was willing to be called a dog in a crisis to assure that her daughter gets healed. I'm simply saying, don't say what you won't do in a crisis until you get there. Our ancestors engaged in practices that became critical to their own survival. They were subjected to humiliating gestures that you and I today vow we would never tolerate. But we don't know it. We didn't live during the 60s in terms of actually being out there when they were being hosed from fire hydrants. When Bull Connor sixed the dogs on them, children, women, as well as men. We weren't there when they were strung and brought out of jails and strung on trees for lynching. Or when they bombed houses, we weren't there. We don't know what we will do in the midst of a crisis. It's one of those moments in which it turns Malcolm X's whole entire life as a little boy named Malcolm Little when they see the Klan. He sees the Klan comes in and they catch his father, take him to the railroad tracks and kill him. And that's the thing that turns him from Christianity because in that crisis he didn't see God come through and rescue His father. But the point being that underneath all of this kind of behavior, this interesting crisis moment in these boys' lives is a divine intention to shake their conscience to help them realize that the past wrong that they have done, there are divine reasons why God is confronting their conscience. They have no idea that the God of history has orchestrated this famine so that while they are in Canaan, they're going to have to come to Egypt and see Joseph like they've never seen him before. And it's God who is using their brother in whom they meant evil to which God will turn around and use for the good by shaking their conscience that they would come to know God in a very different way. They bow, says the text, but don't recognize who Joseph is. Now, Joseph knew each of these 10 brothers very personally, very intimately, but most importantly, in a very terrifying manner. I'm convinced that Joseph, he not only holds the power of life and death for these brothers, but Joseph also needed to know what actually was in the heart of these brothers since he hasn't seen them in 13, 14 years. He needs to know that although he has forgiven and although he has forgotten, because remember he names his two sons Manasseh, God has made me forget all of my afflictions, all of my problems, even in my father's house. And he names his second son Ephraim. God has blessed me and made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. All of that is happening, but I'm here to tell you because Joseph has that experience, that doesn't mean that Joseph has totally forgotten what his brothers did to him. Joseph had to consider when he last saw these brothers what kind of behavior they depicted with him. So I, I think Joseph wrestled with these legitimate questions. Were they the same callous people that they were before? Were they still the murderers that they attempted to be and were before? Were they still heartless? Did they still hate him as a brother? Were they still jealous because he was a dreamer and they were not? Would they resort to similar behavior when pressured? We must not forget that these were some very hard core men who massacred an entire group of people and sold Joseph Into slavery i'll bet you this joseph didn't forget i think that when joseph saw those brothers all of that reminiscence came in his mind and he knew all that they have had and he had to wrestle with those questions that's why i believe that joseph did what he did from verse 7 of chapter 42 all the way down to verse 40 of chapter 42 Notice that Joseph is in a position of advantage and yet he's still dealing with a set of emotions. Look at the pattern, if you will, in the story because it's familiar to us with people who have power and they're trying to wrestle with, what do I do when those who have offended me stand before me? Once again, verse 7, clause A says that Joseph recognized his brothers I think that kicked in mental payback. Not revenge, just mental payback. Notice twice, the Bible says in verse 7 and in verse 8, that Joseph recognized them, but they didn't recognize him. And they, they couldn't recognize him because Joseph's entire demeanor, his appearance had changed. He was a shaven man, Because as a Semite Hebrew, they would have had a beard. Joseph no longer has his beard. He is dressed in royal regal of Egyptian privilege. They would not have known the clothing of the best. His language, he's not speaking Hebrew. Not at the moment. He's probably speaking by way of Egyptian. Or he may be speaking a dialect that at least allows him to interact with both. But they're not recognizing who he is. One, may, one reason maybe is because they are bowed down with their faces to the ground and not looking up exactly at Joseph. But the dialogue sort of unveils the idea that they probably don't recognize him. Another thing to notice is that the Bible says that Joseph disguises himself. Verse seven, clause B. I found that interesting. He not only... Recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger. Says the New Living Translation. But the New American Standard says he disguised himself. That's two different meanings: stranger and with a disguise. And he does that. He pretends to be a stranger, and yet he disguises himself. He didn't want them to know exactly who he is yet messing with them mentally. Then the Bible says in verse 7, verse C, that he treats them harshly. Look at verse 7. It says that he not only pretended to be a stranger, but he spoke harshly to them. A different kind of harsh treatment than his brothers had done to him. Because rather than to humiliate them as they did him, he decided to interrogate them. Where are you from? We came, they responded, from Canaan to buy food. Look at verse 9. When hearing that, the Bible says that Joseph remembered dreams, particularly those two dreams, verse 9, clause 8. That which goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 37, he remembers the dreams of, that God had given him, but he knew that even in remembering that dream, they were not yet complete because the dream included all 11 of his brothers and his parents. Well, Rachel, his mother is deceased, so all he has left is his brothers and his father, Jacob. He knew that there was more to come. Then the Bible says that Joseph accused him of being on a recognized mission See verse 9, Clause B? He said that you are doing espionage. You're spying. You are here trying to find out where's our weak spot in the space. You're trying to see where there's vulnerability in the land. And the brother says, oh no, we're not here to do that. He knew in reality they weren't there on a recognizant mission. This is how I know that Joseph is towing with their minds. He knew that. He knew that they were there not only because they were hungry, but they were shepherds who raised cattle, who needed grain to feed the animals. So he knew they were there to genuinely get grain, but he messed with their mind. And you know, we got to be honest, we got that kind of power. We can mess with people's minds Just to prove a point. I know. He's mentally as I said paying them back. How do I know that? Because he's zero in on the one thing he knew they weren't doing. Spying. Because he's in control of what they need. See notice how in verse 9 through 12 and verse 14. They keep responding to his espionage charges but their final response set them up for the beginning of joseph's dream to start to unfold and become a reality look at what they said to joseph in verse 13 once again sir uh, they said in responding to joseph saying that that you've come to be a spy no sir There are actually 12 of us. We, your servants, are all brothers, son of the one man living in the land of Canaan. Our younger brother is back in Canaan with our father now, but one of our brothers is no longer with us. I'm convinced that last night the one brother who is no longer with us, triggered in Joseph's mind, Now we're on our way. Because now the true nature of Joseph's motive is going to be unveiled. Because although I have been sounding like Joseph is seeking some kind of revenge. What I've really been trying to tell you is Joseph by way of divine direction I believe is working to reunite his family. He has to do that. Because in order for Genesis chapter 15 and the promise that God made in Genesis 12 to come to pass, they have to be in Egypt and then make their way back to Canaan. And so what's Joseph's next move? It's a smooth one. He says, to prove that you're not a spy, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go back and get your younger brother. Now, you might ask, why would Joseph consider the younger brother to be so important? Well, I want to think that Joseph was considering, I need to know that Benjamin hadn't suffered what you attempted to do to me, that he's not dead, but that he's alive. And to make sure that this comes to pass, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to incarcerate one of you and let the rest of you go back And get Benjamin, your younger brother, and bring him back here. So I'm going to keep Simeon with me. That's who he ends up keeping, Simeon with me. And I'm going to let you go back to Canaan. And I want you to bring your younger brother back to me. That's verses 12 through 15. That's what he does. Go back and get that younger brother, 15 through 17. Now, Joseph his brother because here's what he's doing he's afflicting them the same way they afflicted him see it worked this way they oppressed him so now Joseph is oppressing them go back to Genesis chapter 37 verse 2 they accused him of spying now Joseph is accusing them of spying They threw Joseph in a pit, Genesis 37 verse 24. Now Joseph has thrown them in the prison. Best of all, he called them to bring forth this young brother because now since Jacob and and his brothers believe that Joseph is dead, Joseph was the favorite son of his father. But because he's dead, they think he's dead. Now, Benjamin is the favorite son of the father. And Joseph is simply telling you what goes around comes around. And he's looking to see if that younger brother is going to come back. Everything they did to Joseph, he did it to them except. Minus the harshness, because he was working on behalf of God to raise the consciousness about the wrong that they had done. But with an objective to reunite the family, lead these brothers to repentance and restore them as the promised people they were intended to be. So as I close, the question becomes, what's the lesson learned from this interesting moment of Joseph's journey. Well, let me say, first of all, when you have been deliberately wronged, there's something you're going to have to wrestle with. Do I take revenge? Do I foster restoration? And do I rescue the fallen? That's the question you got to wrestle with when you've been deliberately wrong and yet God has worked things in your life where whatever that offense was no longer has a priority. You've grown past it. And yet those offenders somehow find their way back to your space, but they are in need. Now you have to ask yourself the question, and I have the power to do something. Do I take revenge Do I work at restoring or do I find a way to rescue them from falling? There's a second lesson and the second lesson is despite their offense, despite the offense, don't let your now blind you of your necks. Don't let your now blind you Of your necks. I'm not going to suggest that it's not painful. I'm not going to suggest that the offense was not difficult. I'm not going to suggest that the offense did not break your life to a point where you were fragile. And became even more fragile. But the glory of the Holy Spirit is that he can give you power to move past your pain. And one way to do that is to listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all that other stuff that you need. Not only forgiveness, but power, peace, grace will be provided for you. So don't let the moment of now blind you to what God has in your next. Here's another lesson. Never forget to let God hold your vision for your next victory. Never forget to let God hold your vision for your next victory. I am overwhelmingly convinced that what Joseph did was entrusted that next victory to God. That's the reason why I believe through all of the pit and the prison that he endured for those 13 years, he eventualized his new life in the palace because he kept trusting that God would bring the next victory. And God did in very mysterious and yet wonderful ways. So always remember, rather than to retaliate, just give that vision to God for the next victory. Another lesson is there is life after this, whatever that is, whether it's a broken promise, whether it's a broken heart, there's always life after this moment. No matter what they have done, no matter how they have offended you, no matter how they have treated you, there is life after this moment. The key becomes, will you pursue? Remember 1 Samuel 31 When David has lost all that he had because of the Amalekites and he goes to God and says, what should I do? Should I pursue? And God says, pursue. You might want to pursue so that you can experience the victory. And never forget the words of David. He restoreth my soul. And then there's a final thing. God works in the midst of our violations for the need to shake the guilt in our consciousness that with the intention of leading us to repentance and restoration. That's what this story really is all about. Leading those brothers to repentance and then restoring them. But here's the final lesson. Power is the ability to walk away from something you desire To protect something else that you love. That's an amazing word. It's the ability, power to walk away from something you desire and to protect something that you love. Joseph walked away from revenge because he loved restoration more. And so he wanted to protect his brothers that they too might experience the victory that he had already walked in. God shakes our conscience through many different ways so that we might come to him and hear those words. Come now and let us reason together. Father, we pray in your name that the word of life and the word of truth resonates in the spirit of those who wrestle with this issue of forgiveness today. I pray that in your name as we look at this life of Joseph that we will learn consistently that whenever we have sought and we have experienced this idea of violating and violated that we in return quickly run to the throne of grace and to those to whom we've wounded and seek forgiveness. Those of us who have the power to be able to make a difference in lives Help us, Lord, to remember that it's critical that we walk away from something that brings nothing but more pain. And yet walk to that which we seek to protect because it's more that we love the person, the soul, and the spirit. Save that soul that calls on your name today. And may today become a moment in which Jesus Christ becomes the Lord of someone's life today. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As always, it's our joy and our anticipation that someone today comes to know Christ in a very personal way. If that be the case, we pray that at the end of this service, there are many ways in which you can contact us via social media. Please let us know how the gospel has changed your life and how the Lord has made a difference through this word in blessing you today. We always encourage those who consistently given to us thank you with great gratitude we encourage you to continue to do so because that enables us to be able to come and to share the good news with you well my time is up but we certainly will say to you always remember God loves you and so do I have a blessed wonderful day and week in the Lord in Jesus name amen